Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, I'll be short. Don't worry. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of the Storybox podcast. My name is Jay Phantom, and if you are a new listener or a returning listener, welcome. Thank you so much. And this week on the show, I have a very special guest. His name is Andrew Scipioni. He was our former police commissioner, and we get to talking. He was very generous with his time, but we get to talking about things that are very, very meaningful, deep, very philosophical once again. Uh, we talk, we do talk a lot about what it takes to be a man, what it means to be a man, uh, leadership, some things that he went through uh, to get to being the police commissioner as well. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in this interview with Andrew Scipioni. Really do appreciate his time and I know you guys are going to get a lot out of it. Um, that's all from me. Enjoy the interview with Andrew Scipioni. Hi, yeah. Hi, Jared. Um, yeah, Andrew Scipioni, I... Uh my background is one that that saw me um, work as a police officer for many, many years. I'm no longer working as a police officer. I retired a couple of years ago. I'm now a director on uh, a couple of big organisations, certainly uh, World Vision Australia and Special Olympics. Um, I'm doing some work, consultancy work, um, looking at and assisting in the reorganisation of uh, major police force and uh, a few other things on the side. But the most important job I've got at the moment is being a granddad to three kids. That must keep you very busy. It does. <laughs> I wish it kept me busier and I didn't have to do as much in the other areas, but um, that day will come. So how did you get started as a police officer? Um, okay. like, did you always want to be a police officer? Well, funny enough, I didn't. Um, my, my working... Um, life started when I actually left school. I became an apprentice electrician. Okay. I worked as an electrician um, for a couple of years and uh, at the time I was an indentured apprentice but uh, the reality of the building industry in the, the 70s was that um, there was some really tough times and the company I worked for uh, became uh, uh, redundant and I lost my job and they didn't have to find me another job because I uh, was part of a uh, a trade that had suffered very badly. I then decided that I needed to work and I couldn't get uh, any work as an electrician so I took on a job and joined the public service and then um, shortly after that I joined customs. I worked oh. as uh, a preventive officer at the airport and uh, on the, the waterfront in Sydney. What was that like back in the, it was was great. the 70s? Or? It, well, it was great. Yeah, 70s, yeah, yeah mid to, uh, to late 70s. Had a fantastic time, really enjoyed it. 
moved into the intelligence area where there was a lot of work, uh, surveillance work, and and uh, again had a had a great opportunity to meet a lot of people, and I met some very honest, professional, hardworking New South Wales police officers on a joint operation, and uh, during the course of that operation, getting to know them better, they they convinced me that I should go and apply for the New South Wales Police Force. So I did and I joined in 1980. Uh, I never had any aspirations of ever joining the police force, really. Um, I always saw it as, as something that was commendable, but it wasn't something that I necessarily thought was for me until it was put in my mind and then God just opened doors. And uh, in 1980, I was sworn in and I started work in the, uh, the Hurstville area as a probationary constable. And so you just um, said, so you, you were a Christian, right? Yeah. So when did you become a Christian? Okay, well, uh, look, probably even going one step back, I came to Australia as a, as a child, as a baby. Um, my parents came from the United Kingdom. Uh, my mother was born in Ireland and um, I was born in London. We travelled here by boat. Uh, and as I said, I was only a very young child. I wasn't one with my sister and uh, we started a new life here in Australia. We were what is known as 10 pound palms. We came here for 10 pounds <laughs> on an assisted pack, uh, passage. So my, uh, my beginnings were um, growing up in southwestern Sydney in the Padstow area where my father uh, bought a house that had just been built and uh, I from there grew up just as a, a normal Aussie kid I just had a, mm. a ball um, we we had a, a wonderful street lots of friends but you know um, I'd never been to church I hadn't even thought about church only because it wasn't part of our our family DNA and when I was uh, probably around about nine or ten um, some neighbors uh, moved into the house next door recently married young couple and they led a youth group at Riverwood Baptist Church and over the years, I, I got to know them and trust them. And um, I ended up going to Riverwood Baps, uh, joined the youth group there. I hadn't been inside a church, I think, till I was about 12. Mm. And uh, at 14, uh, I can remember the night in the, in the house next door, I gave my heart to the Lord. Mm. And um, I really look back and, and realise I've made a lot of very important decisions in my life but none more important, important than that. That mm. was the most important thing I have ever done. So at 14 I became a Christian. Um, ironically at, at you know the same time, a couple of months later, my father died. He died at home and uh, so I, <laughs> I went from being a, a boy to a man overnight and, mm. and uh, whilst I still had a a great sort of amount of freedom. Um, it was tough because my mother, as I said, we had no family here. My mother uh, at that stage was very lonely and she she didn't know the Lord, wasn't going into a church. And so, you know, long story short, I was able to see her come to meet the Lord when I was 16. She gave a heart to, to Jesus at the same church that I was going to. Yeah. And... Uh, it went from there, but it was because of my father dying that I had to leave school. I had to finish school pretty early. I finished my my sorry my school certificate and started doing my HSC, but we couldn't afford it. Mum had a mortgage, mm. and she was one um, the only 
breadwinner and so yeah so I had to go to work and it was that for that reason that I started my apprenticeship as a very young um, boy and uh, subsequently followed you know the, that I would go ahead and uh, I did and join the police force as I say I was I was 20 when I actually went into the New South Wales police force and did you have to do any prior study to be join the no in those days you simply needed to be able to we had to be a certain height you needed <laughs> to be a certain weight your chest had to be a certain expansion uh, you needed to have a school certificate um, either be an Australian subject uh, or uh, sorry a, a, a British subject or an Australian citizen and I think you had to be able to do the spelling test, uh, which was a page out of the Sydney Morning Herald. And if, <laughs> wow. you, uh, if you got through and you didn't have too many mistakes, you were in. That's great. And what was it like being a police officer? How long were you an actual police officer for before you transitioned into being the commissioner? Okay. Well, look, I was in the New South Wales Police Force for 37 years. Um, during that time, I'd worked... Um, in general duties in and around the St George district. Uh, I, I then went and rode uh, motorcycles, so I was a solo motorcyclist in the city in the uh, central business district, which was great fun, particularly if you liked riding motorbikes, which I used to do on a weekend, so I couldn't believe that they were paying me to do it mm. through the week and giving me a motorbike to do it, a brand-new motorbike. Um, I then moved uh, into... Back into criminal investigation with the Special Gaming Squad. Uh, I then uh, transferred out to Bankstown. I did what is known as my detective's designation at Bankstown Detectives. Um, from there, uh, from Bankstown Detectives, I went into the National Crime Authority. So I worked on major overseas organised crime. Did that for seven years and then transferred into a very special technical area which was involved in electronic covert surveillance. So we built that up um, to be a major um, organisational uh, command within New South Wales Police. I then transferred through into executive leadership. I became the, the chief of staff to the then police commissioner, Commissioner Ryan. Uh, and, and from there, after the Olympics, went through the Olympics as the chief of staff, which was just incredible. And uh, then I transferred in to become the commander of the Special Crime and Internal Affairs branch. Uh, then a deputy commissioner. And then from there in 2007, I was promoted through to become the commissioner of the New South Wales Police Force. Now, that's a pretty, pretty incredible series of events. Now, during that time... As a police officer, you must have come across some pretty, in, like, incredible stories that would have probably changed your views on certain things. I can mm. imagine because mm. some of the things you hear about either on the news or in just by sitting down and talking. Because a couple of my friends are police officers, and some of the things that they have to witness and deal with yeah. on any given day are pretty challenging. Mm. So, what were some challenges that you faced uh. early on? Gee, you know, um, we we train our police to do incredible things. Um, we take ordinary men and women and we make them superstars in my mind. They, they you know, we, we watch football games and, and we watch sporting events and we talk about the heroes. Um, 
you know, some of these emergency workers, as they're the heroes. You're seeing that witness now with yeah. fire staff, uh, volunteers, are going into really dangerous situations. But our police do that every day. It's not when there's a fire or a fire season. It's every day. It's every night. It's every week, every year, every decade. And I was part of a big organisation that was the oldest, the largest, the most powerful policing agency in Australia, one of the largest in the world, 21,000 when I finished. A lot of history, some of it not so good, but much of it rich in, in, in its value to uh, Australia, in its value to the state of New South Wales. And as I reflect on what I have done over my career and I look back at those very early years, you know, the, the, a couple of things that um, stick in my mind. One, we were dealing with an entrenched problem that you know, as was well known. Um, we, we had some serious judgment lapses where men and women were, predominantly the men were acting corruptly, doing things they shouldn't do. And that stuck in my mind, you know, it's about, it's about doing the right thing and um, that was something that, that really, um, it didn't confront me but it made me stronger to say that, you know, there, there are, you should learn from mistakes, preferably someone else's. I'd seen a lot of men make mistakes. Mm. I didn't want to go there. In terms of some of the jobs I can recall, one of the saddest jobs I went to was a, a, a young fellow who, in fact, I got to know his family. He grew up in, in the Greenacre area and a good family. Mum and dad were blind, um, had one son and he got hooked on heroin. And the tragedy of watching that boy who we tried to work with, arrested him a number of times and tried to get him help and put him before you know, courts to get him into medical support. Mm. Uh, and he kept going back to his, his ways um, but to talk to mum and dad uh, and just have a, a cup of tea with them sitting in their home, just an old Australian couple, um, young boy, he's, he, he had no direction, got in with a, a bad bunch of people, made some really bad choices and he ultimately um, died. Um, he was breaking into a, uh, a commercial a building and the police can, were there and as he saw them he decided he was going to run and uh, run and jumped off the first floor and landed on the road and, and um, died. And talking to his mum and dad just made me realise what a tragic waste of life. Mm. You know, this boy would have turned into his father with the, the benefit of, you know, 30 or 40 years later or 50 years later. Just a good, hard-working, caring mm -hmm. man that knew how to deal with adversity. He didn't get a chance because he got caught up and made, as I said, some really bad choices. So those sorts of um, stories and things stay with you because uh, it's tough. And I guess you know, one of the other ones I can recall was a terrible tragedy. I, I was only in the police force probably only oh, not 12 months and I got called to a, um, a motor vehicle accident where the person that was driving was trapped. He was in a van and he was trapped from about the, the knees down but in serious trouble. We, we couldn't get him out and um, 
he was bleeding and he was in a serious way and I can recall talking to him middle of the night, uh, probably one or two in the morning uh, and just trying to keep him going until we could get some assistance rescue and to try and cut him out. But, um, you know, he he uh, he was talking but he said, I'm, I'm dying and, you know, I'm, I'm there trying to say, look, it'll be all right. Stay with us. It'll be okay. Young, I was only a young man, um, trying to reassure her. Uh, what was going through your mind? Well, you, you know, in talking to him, I realised that he was probably going to die. But the interesting thing is I, the, the, what was going through my mind, not only at that event and afterwards, was the fact that this man wasn't talking about how much money he had or wanting to get a new car or... Mm how much money he wanted to earn or that next promotion or, you know, that 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 uh, windfall lottery uh, ticket that would buy him, you know, the, his future. All he wanted to talk about was his family mm. and he didn't have enough time. I've never been to a situation where somebody's dying where they start talking about the things of this world. They always talk about the things of no, the next that, world. Yeah. And so that stuck with me and made me realise just how futile um this world is in many regards oh we love it you know what what a what a what a blessed life we have here in modern australia mm. but that's not all there is and i still go through that intersection probably most days i travel through that intersection from home and it, every now and again it comes back to me about that incident that man um that thought and makes me realise that um, there's more to this life than living and dying. How do you manage all those mm. things that you've seen on, on any, any given day? Like you must have seen, even witnessing someone's life just going mm. before you, what's that like for you as a person? Because it's pretty traumatic, I think, being able to witness something like that. So how does... What, what's going through your mind? How do you manage dealing with that trauma? Yeah, well, look, it's in life, particularly as a cop, bad things happen. Mm. Um, you see bad things. You're involved in bad things. You're running into situations where people normally are turning around and running away, and that's okay. That's why police officers are police. Uh, that doesn't mean that everyone can do it. In fact, a lot of people join the police force and realise it's not for me and turn around and leave. And I used to say that's the very best thing you can do for us and for yourself. I don't want to make you ill. I don't want the job that you go to tomorrow and the day after and the day after be the reason why you suffer. And, and you know, we, we know that doing this type of work can break people. Mm. Spiritually, it can break them. Mentally, it can break them physically. So for me... Um, I didn't see it as a reason to to feel in any way um, damaged. I always used to try and take life lessons from from what I was seeing. And as I say, things like uh, a man trapped dying, breathing his last breath, um, and then seeing uh, our body there at, at the scene, it gave me an understanding that there is this separation between body and spirit. Mm. Um, 
it's interesting. I would go to a scene where there was a deceased person and it wasn't half as traumatic because I knew that 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 the person um, that the spirit of that person had gone. Mm. Um, the issue was, you know, had they made a decision, were they destined for for a life with the Lord or not? Mm. That was a difficult thing, but that had already been set before they died. Um, they had to make choices. But dealing with the, the, the right there and then with a deceased or a crime scene wasn't half as bad when you realise that right now that person's not a person. Mm. Um, the bit that really matters has gone. Mm. And, and that made it so much easier for me. Having a spiritual dimension to my life with an understanding of what comes after death did two things. One, it made me realise that you had to get your, your, your life into order before um, you came to your end on this earth. And it didn't matter whether you were 10 or 100. The fact is um, we're all going to die. You've just got to work out what you're going to do. And as I said, bad things happen to police officers and it's not necessarily what happens to you that determines... Um, you know, where you end up in your mind or in your in your, your your body and your soul, it's what you do in response to what happens. So, in terms of what you see, and and you know, there are tough days, really tough days, and and um, again, you've got to make a choice. You've got to make a decision. You know, um, pain is inevitable when you're a cop. You go through pain. You'll go home and you'll sort of think about the child that you 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 know you witnessed that was involved in a car accident or a baby that's died in a cot or some terrible situation where a parent's been stabbed by a child that's been drug affected, and you know that there's pain. But that's inevitable. Mm. What you got to understand though is what you let it do to you. Well, misery, the misery that that can bring, that's optional. The only person that can let that impact you is you. Is you. Mm. So you had to be strong. You had to build up that resilience. You had to work through all those things. So what are some ways that people can build up that sort of resilience to seeing trauma? Um, I, look, there's only, there's only one way. Mm. Um, only one way I would say. And for me it was to, to trust in God. Mm. It, was, it was to realise that whether I was a constable or the commissioner, it wasn't about me. What I was here doing was not only my career but it was my calling. Mm. It, was, it was the place where God had put me to do what I was meant to be doing on this earth for 37 years. And, and so I had to draw back into God mm. so heavily and rely totally on him and understand that in my own strength I couldn't do this. I wouldn't have been capable. I wouldn't have wanted to do it. Mm. And, and that didn't mean that, that, you know, you had to have um, an evangelical service at the beginning of every shift. In, uh, you know, m much of my life um, was about living out Christ in the way I acted and what I said and what I did and how I treated people. Because actions um, are more powerful than yeah, words. Yeah, well, you know, I think it was 
um, Francis of Assisi that said, you know, in everything you do, preach the gospel and if you must, talk about it. Mm. Um, and so people, particularly cops, we, tre- we teach cops to be cynical. We teach cops not to take things on face value, not to trust necessarily everything you're told or what you see, to probe, to test. Mm. And, and that doesn't switch off when you start talking to your friends that you work with or your neighbours or your mates or when you go down the street. That's why cops are incredible. Cops will walk down the street here off duty and they'll see somebody across the road that's been wanted for about three years and they saw a picture six months ago and they said, there's that person. They go back into cop mode. Well, a lot of that is the cynic and, as I say, that's really important. So they're quite cynical when they sort of say, oh, so you're a church guy. Yeah. Did you find it hard? No, I didn't find it hard. I mean, it could have been hard. It really depended on, you know, I used to talk about, I had some some friends, they weren't even cops, who said, you know, how do you talk about your life and Christ and, you know, sometimes, and these weren't Christian people, you know, like you're, you look a bit foolish, you know, it's a bit Sunday schoolish, to which I'd say, hey, you know, if I've got to look a fool, I'm happy to be a fool for Jesus. But but again, I don't I don't want you to come and tell me necessarily about um, you know what I need to be doing and and how I need to be living and all of those things which are really important. I want to see you exhibit it. I want to see if you're the real deal, yeah. because everyone doesn't matter what you do. Everyone wants leadership and they want authentic leadership. And you know you can't fake it. You can do it for a little while, but you can't fake it forever before everyone starts to hang on a minute. This guy's a fraud. You know, it's a bit easy for him to say, you know, come to Jesus, live a good life, um, love your family, trust in God, and then have three girlfriends, have a gambling habit, um, you know, steal, Mm. load people up. It just doesn't compute. You know, there's no authenticity in that. And they say, well, you're you're a fake. Mm. And so... Um, you know, living it and doing it was more important often than talking it. What is a, um, to you, what is the definition of a true leader? Well, look, leadership, when you boil it all down, leadership's all about influence. Mm. If I can lead you by influencing you to say, let's go this way, um, whether it's on uh, a journey to the shop or whether it's on a journey as a nation, for a, a leader in a country to say, we're, we're going in this direction. Um, leadership's about being able to influence people to perhaps do things they wouldn't otherwise do if you hadn't have been there to give them an understanding of what they need to do. And you need to sprinkle on that things like wisdom, mm. understanding, perseverance, strength, courage. You know, leadership, a big part of leadership's courage. And courage is something that's really interesting. Courage is something that you don't plant in the ground and grow and then graft it onto somebody. Courage is learnt. You know, our soldiers that travelled overseas learnt a lot from those that went before them. Mm. So courage has got to be um, modelled. You need to watch it. For a person to, to become courageous, they need to do it. But they first needed to see it 
happen. And and so, you know, strong leaders will always remember where they've come from and they'll always remember the lessons, you know, that they, they learnt along the way. They'll work out what was good and wasn't so good and they'll filter out the bad and they'll bring the good to what they're doing in terms of, you know, leading, as I say, a, a family or a nation. And we're all leaders. People used to say, how can you say that? And I'd say, no, 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 we are all leaders. What you've got to understand is that if you influence people, you're a leader. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean you're a good leader. If you think about it, um, you've got a brother or a cousin when you were growing up and you had a younger brother or a younger cousin or a younger friend live next door, did you ever encourage them or, 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 or get them to do something that otherwise they wouldn't do that was silly or dangerous or stupid, yeah, we probably all did that. Well, let me tell you, at that time when you were influencing, you are a leader. Mm. And in being that leader, you then, you then um, realise that, that, you know, you can, you can get people to do a whole lot of things they wouldn't otherwise do. And, and in itself, probably the most important leadership role I ever had was being a leader in my family, mm. being there for my children, teaching them how to live and what was important, modelling Christ, going to church, loving their mother, um, caring for community, helping those that didn't have as much as we did. You know, they were the true leadership models that I left with my kids, teaching them how to be courageous when things don't go well and, you know, there's fear. Um, and so we're blessed. We've we've got three children, and they're all adults now, and they're all in their very own right. They're they're all leaders, and uh, you know. So leadership is made up of many many different parts. But as I reflect on my thirty seven years and the last ten as the commissioner, those that were good influences were the very best leaders. Mm. Was there any any time throughout your career? Either when you first started, when you uh, as a cop, or being the commissioner, that you were scared. Oh, daily, mm. daily. Um, scared, not necessarily in terms of a, always a physical, you know, fear. Um, but you know, the, the 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 notion of fear is not a bad thing necessarily. I mean, it sharpens your senses. It 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 causes your body to change. You know, the 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 uh, the fight or flight syndrome is something that's based on fear, and often it's not it's not a reality. But you know, the the fact is that that uh, when God made us, He made us beings that relied on fear, and you know, the physical process of adrenaline being released and the like allowed you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. So you shouldn't be concerned about fear in itself. But remember I said um, fear needs to – well, I, I talked about courage and I said courage is contagious. Fear is contagious. Mm. You, can, you can scare a society, you can scare a nation, you can scare a world um, quite easily um, by by – saying the things that people don't want to hear and then convincing them that it is a reality and that they are at risk. 
So we've all heard about it, you know, like at school or at work. I'm sure you hear something that talks about um, a terrible disease that's that that's spreading across the world like Ebola, and and they can strike fear into the hearts of people, not just here in Australia, but right across the world. A fear that say I'm not going to travel, I'm not going to get on a plane, I don't want to run the risk of being affected by. Um, you know, some some disease from another part of the world, when in fact the chances of you being you know, caught up in that are very, very low. But fear is contagious, but so is courage. Mm. Courage is contagious too. But if you can, you know, that's what I'm talking about, leadership, that art of influence. The physical fear that you go through as a police officer, um, it doesn't necessarily need to be in relation to a job where you're confronted by an armed offender or you're dealing with a, a car that's about to explode and you're trying to extract people from a, a burning wreck. It can be the fear of having to do with a situation where you know the outcome might not be all that good or it might be um, problematic. Your actions may lead to um, either a good outcome or potentially a very bad outcome for a, a whole host of people. Mm. Um so the one thing I did learn about fear is you can't dodge it. You've just got to deal with it. You've got to go you know, up front um, and, and not manage it, but certainly be in a position to respond to it and be ready for it um, at any time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's all awesome pieces of information. So now moving towards when you did become the police commissioner, what was it like when you first started? Well, I mean, I had the benefit, as, as I said, of being a chief of staff to a commissioner from about 1998 through until 2001, um, beginning of 2001. So I had a chance to see what it was like. A chief of staff sits, um, if you like, as the troubleshooter for the commissioner, deals with all of the the, the, the daily grind, the problems, and, and so I got a chance to see that firsthand. So I did have an understanding. I also worked as a deputy commissioner from 2001, early 2002, through until 2007 as a deputy commissioner. So I'd relieved on a number of occasions. But even that, with all of that experience, you're never really prepared for what you're actually going into. Um, it's not until you have your feet on the other side of the table that you fully understand just how much is resting on um, what you do. So um, I was completely um, blessed to be given the opportunity. I, you know, I was the 21st police commissioner in the history of the New South Wales Police Force. There'd been 20 before me since the first fleet arrived in Australia. Um, and here I was, a kid from London that really had no right or claim mm. to be a, a cop or a senior cop, let alone the commissioner, the 21st police commissioner in the history of the organisation. Um, as I said, it was an old organisation. It was founded 150 years before um, you know, its history goes back to the days when um, the Americans were fighting the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln was, a, was, was alive and they were selling slaves on the docks um, mm. across America. So it's, it's an old organisation. 
it was one of the largest in the world. As I say, when I finished, there was 21,000 people in the organisation. We were an expensive organisation. We spent a lot of money. My last budget was $3.2 billion. None of that was mine. That was all yours. Mm. That belonged to the community of New South Wales. New South Wales the, is a state of 800,000 square kilometres, seven and a half million people. So it was a big, powerful, um, expensive organisation that I'd been put in charge of. Mm. So um, what does the police commissioner do? Well, exactly? well, what goes with the title is the responsibility. Mm. So what does a commissioner do? Look, um, by comparison to those brave souls that go out there and do what they do every day, not much in my mind. You know, my biggest risk was dying from a paper cut. <laughs> um, they were out there dealing with people that were crazed, that were drug affected, that were in stupid, terrible, dangerous situations. Um, my job was pretty well threefold. The most important job I had was looking after community. You know, I didn't, I didn't own the community of New South Wales. They owned me. The next most important job I had at work was um, looking after those 21,000 men and women that made the police force. Again, I, I was there to serve them. Um, I had a, a responsibility to do all I could to keep them safe, to make sure that they went home at night in as good a shape as they came to work, if not better, um, and to be there during the good times and the bad times to make sure that, that um, you know, I, I was their commissioner. And lastly, and it sounds ironic, it was to deal with politicians and government so that we had enough resources, we had enough money, we had good laws, good policy, that we were a priority. So, in fact, I was in competition with sort of 17 other heads of government agencies to make sure that I got the right outcomes for our police and the right outcomes for our community so that, you know, when we needed good laws to deal with problems that were emerging, we got them. And that only came if, you know, if you had the trust and the respect of government and they would let you go and do those things. They would give you the legislation. They would fund the initiative. And... Um, you know, they I always saw as my my three priorities. As I was there as a leader, but I was there to serve. Mm. You know, I wasn't there to be served. I was there to serve. And again, that's something that that I took straight out of the gospel. That's why Christ came. Mm. So, servant's heart. That's because I remember when I was when I was growing up, seeing you on TV when something would happen, if, if it was good or bad, you'd be addressing the local community of, of Sydney mm. and New South Wales and just hearing you just being able to calm basically you would, be, you would calm me like it would be a situation that'd be so terrible and the words that you spoke and, and my mum I was only young at the time and my mum would say she didn't even know you were a Christian but she said that man's a Christian I know it by the words that you were speaking. And I didn't think too much of it, but hearing you say 
everything you just said before, your example, what you say, everything, it all makes complete sense now to me. And and thanks for that, Jared. And look, and and it was never about me. Mm. It wasn't about me. I, I, as I said, I used to go to work of a day thinking, Father, you're going to have to give me help today. Like you do every day. You've never left me. You've never abandoned me. You never never will. Um, but you know what? There's situations that I'll go through that, that, that I need your divine understanding. I need your guidance. Yeah. And, and so when I would talk to people like you um, and talk to millions of others, all of those things I talked about in terms of leadership being able to influence, influence you to the point where you'd say, it's going to be okay. Mm. Or if it wasn't going to be okay, I would tell you, it's not going to be okay. You wanted to make sure that what you were hearing was the truth, that I was being genuine, mm. that I was being authentic. Because if I'd told you something and I'd made it up, the trust that I had with community was based on a relationship. If you break the trust, you break the relationship. So you wouldn't need to have seen too many things go wrong with me before people would say, he's a fraud. Mm. Remember I said, you can't fake it forever. You can't fake it for 10 minutes sometimes, let alone 10 weeks or 10 months, definitely not 10 years. And so, you know, God was so gracious to me. I left um, after... 10 years in that role uh, in in um, stronger relationship with community than when I started and that's mm. normally not the case. Most people can, can um, go into a new job um, with that sort of authority and start out as heroes and go out as villains because you've got to do things that, that necessarily people don't like. But see, it was much easier for me because I had – Christ with me. And when I say Christ with me, I didn't see the relationship of, as one where I brought him to work. He used to take me to work. You know, I, was, I wasn't a commissioner who just happened to be a, a, a Christian. I was a Christian who just happened to be a commissioner. Mm. And that made the difference. I've heard a lot of people that I've spoken to that are Christians, that talk about that very thing. It's not just the fact that you are a Christian, it's that very thing. You're in a secular world, it's very difficult oftentimes to actually exemplify and, and show Christ. But if you're doing what you need to do, if you're actually, you have the choice to exemplify Christ in your actions, in your words, through your character as well. It's like you were saying before, we have a lot of Christians that don't exemplify Christ enough. And then we have in, in the workplace Christians that, that do, but they're the ones that it's, it's a very difficult, I think, for a lot of people when, when they hear you're a Christian, it's some, almost like it's shunned upon. It's like mm, mm, mm. Look, people used to talk to me. I remember one fellow long before I was a commissioner in a meal room in a, in a police station 
was quite, I don't know, he wasn't agitated, but he wasn't happy. And for some reason he said, you know, it's easy for you. He said, in fact, you know, he said, you've got this Jesus crutch. You use it as a crutch. It's the easy way. And I'd say, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. You tell me what's easier. You're in a situation where as a cop, you're able to influence a whole lot of people and, you know, these, this was in days when, when this is all pre the Royal Commission into Corruption. And I'd say, so tonight we'll finish work. You won't go home to your wife. You'll go up the road up to the pub after you've had a day in the office where you've, you've dealt with a, a range of people and... You know, you've you've probably, um, as we used to say, given them a bit of a hand to get it, make sure that the, you know there was evidence there to to prosecute them. Yep. Um, you've been able to um, cut a few corners and and get an outcome which was much easier for you. You'll leave here. You'll go up the pub. You'll get blind drunk tonight. You'll you'll meet your girlfriend up there. Um, you'll then drive home drunk. And you'll um, do it all again tomorrow. Um, what's what's easier, doing that, or I'll finish here tonight after a long day where, if there's no evidence, there's no evidence. You know, it's not about giving people a hand; it's about doing the right thing. And I had to work twice as hard to get the evidence to make the prosecution. And then I'll leave here and I'll get picked up by my wife. I'll go home and be there with the kids and. Um, We'll eat together and then we'll go through the normal madness that parents go through when kids are, are little and we'll, we'll then fall down on the lounge exhausted and then I'll be back into getting ready for court tomorrow. Um, but I, you know, I won't have the girlfriend. I, I won't be drunk. I won't be out with the boys. I'll be doing those things. And then on the weekend I'll be spending time with my wife and we'll be at church. Um, he said, oh, I wouldn't want that. That, that's too hard. Mm. I, I couldn't do that, you know. I said, well, you know, that's that's what my life is. You walk the narrow path, not the wide one. And and you're right, a lot of people struggle with that. But their first impressions are, well, it's a crutch. It's, it's you know, it's, it's soppy. Mm. It's weak, particularly... In a policing organisation where you're taught to be tough and rough. But you know what? Um, the most manly man that ever walked was Jesus. Uh, he didn't worry about you know, the, mm. the, the, the things of this world. He didn't walk away from fear. Um, he didn't shun the pain. Mm. He could have dealt with that cross before it became his cross. And yet he went there willingly knowing what it would mean to us, you know, thousands of years later for, for, for the mankind. Um, so he didn't take the easy way out. I think with a lot of Christian men particularly, but not exclusively, but men particularly, they need to realise that, that you can be a real man's man and be a Christian. Mm. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's, soppy and Sunday school and um, no, you can, it, it's harder to walk the straight line than it is to walk the uh, the, the, the crooked line, the way. And so, 
for me, um, I just had to make sure that I was strong. I talked about it before. That, that's some, you're, gonna, you're going to have to rely on God to give you that strength, and to give you that courage, and to give you the you know the understanding that this is the right thing to do. Just do it. You know, as Nike says, just do it. <laughs> and in doing it, if you make good choices, you'll have a great life, great outcomes. Mm. Bad choices normally give you the opposite outcome. We've all made bad choices. Praise God that he's there and he's gracious and he forgives us daily because mm. I make bad choices every day. You know, there's only one that's been perfect and they nailed him to a cross. Mm. Um no one else, no one else. And so that includes you and I and you just continue to pray that, that God would give you the wisdom to make sure that they're not um, bad choices that would impact the rest of your life but you've got a way out if you've got Christ. Mm. Were there any bad choices that you made as a commissioner that affected you? Oh, I'm sure. You? I, I'm sure. I, I would have liked to have done more around trying to help police officers that were injured, not just physically injured, mm. mentally injured. You know, as I said, we broke police. We would have them doing things that no person should do. Um, and we put a lot in. We started a lot. Safety commands, we put a lot of psychological support in. We did a whole lot in terms of trying to give them better benefits, to give them a, a way out of, of uh, having a... Um, a career that had stalled because they were injured, um, giving them a chance to, um, once they left the organisation, to feel better about themselves, to give them ongoing medical assistance. We did a lot, but I think I would have liked to have done more. Some of the regrets I have there is that that didn't become my number one priority because these people had given so much. Mm. Um, they deserved probably a little more. So, yeah, bad choices. Oh, look, you make bad choices every day. But somebody said to me once, you know, you make 2,500 choices roughly every day. And I used to say, no, that can't be right. And I said, well, choices like which shoe will I put on first? Will I use my left hand or my right hand to comb my hair or do my teeth? You know, will I get out of the bed on the left side or the right side? Right through, though, to massive choices about will I do that, won't I do that, will I drive when I've had a drink or, you know, th those sorts of choices. So some choices are more important than others. Um, I guess I used to pray that, I, the, that the big choices, the big decisions are the ones, Lord, that I need certainly you to come and take me by the hand. I used to say, um, in trying to describe it, people used to say, but I, I can't really get an understanding of this whole notion. Say, so, well, look, it's a bit like being on a tandem bike. A lot of people I know, a lot of Christians say, well, we're on a tandem bike. I'm, I'm up the front. I've got God on the back and I'm protected. I'm, I'm bulletproof because I've got the father with me riding on the back seat. And I used to say, well, I, I wouldn't be bulletproof. I wouldn't be any safer doing that than if I was on the bike by myself. So my... My thoughts around that was when I got on the bike with with my father, I want him up the front steering. Mm. I'll just sit on the back. He just needs to tell me when I need the pedal harder because if I was up the front, I'd still crash. I'd still steer off the road and hit the tree. And So, you know, I want to give that over. And I think for me a large part of it was absolutely saying, I'm going to give it over to you. 
I don't want my hands on the wheel because I don't know if I'm going to be capable of navigating what we've got to navigate through today. But I know you can. And I would come out of meetings or I'd come from situations where I'd realised, you know, I've just seen you in action yet again, Father. Thank you. It's pretty incredible how you're able to see God through not just your life but through the life of other people as well. Like I've had men and even women in my life that I've been able to see their example and sure they've failed but they've been able to go back to God. They've been able to uh, just ask God for help through that trial. And the amazing, like my mum is an incredible lady. She's been through literal hell and back and she's one of the most faithful women in church to, to God. She prays every single day. It's those kinds of people in my life that I look up to and I think no matter what I've been through in, in any given day or trial or big decision that I make or that I see other people make, you know, like even for, for you as a police commissioner having to try and help and be in that relationship with all those people if you made a mistake, then it doesn't just affect you. It affects oh, it magnifies. People. It magnifies. Yeah. And see, I used to think not only does it necessarily affect me, but it it affects Christians particularly because people would look and say, see that? Christians fault. Christians. Yeah. That's, you know, they're flawed. And absolutely they are. And we would never say anything other than that. But I would carry with me not just my name, my family's name. I'd carry with me. Christ, yeah. and 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 that was a a reflection for you guys. Remember, I said, you know, like you've just you've just you've articulated what I what I've been saying. People want leadership. They want to see genuine, authentic, strong, courageous leadership. Leaders influence, and you're talking about your mum. Mm. Everyone's a leader. We're all called to be leaders. You just got to work out whether you're going to be a good one or a bad one. And so Christ doesn't set us impossible tasks. He just says, you know, do these things in my name. Mm. And, you know, you look at people like David. David had a train wreck of a life, mm-hmm. but he was still a man after God's heart. Mm. And in pursuing that and in taking up God's offer of grace and forgiveness and mercy, he went on to change not just a nation but a world. And it's the same with all of us. So, yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. People used to say, because, I, look, I, I, I've studied at university. I didn't do it, couldn't afford to do it when I was at school, but I had the opportunities to, to train to um, learn, to study and get degrees and master's degrees at Macquarie University around management. And we used to often talk about, so what's the, what's the latest management book you're reading? And I used to reflect and say, well, you know, I've got the best management book that has ever been written, written a long time ago. And it sits next to my pillow on the bedside table. It's the Bible. Every management lesson, every lesson I needed to learn about how to treat people, how to lead them, how to guide them, how to assist them, um, comes straight out of God's word. Mm. 
Most of the leadership books you read these days, in fact, borrow from the Bible. Um, so it, it's yeah. I, I I look back on my my time as a police officer and the last ten as the commissioner, and I see it as nothing more than just it was a coming together of my career and my calling, mm. and. Um, you know, it was a God thing and it was something that absolutely wasn't of me. As I said, what right does a kid have from another part of the world to come here and become the commissioner? None. Mm. I didn't come from a police family. And often police officers follow their fathers or their mothers into the police force and it becomes um, very much like, a, a you, you know, you, you get some pedigree. I didn't have any pedigree. Mm. I, I didn't even think I was going to be a police officer. But God had other plans. Mm. And I think we might, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about being in the center of God's will. And the amazing thing is like with Joseph, he was um, like the favorite of the family, thrown into prison, accused of something he didn't actually do, he had to wait 15 years. And then you can, you can possibly imagine as he's in prison, what's going through his mind Am I really in the center of God's will yeah. then? And then God does something amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So you look at, like, like you were saying, you look at all the examples in the Bible, most of them were all train wrecks. And God used train wrecks and created something for him, something that's amazing. Yeah. And that's why it's, we sing it every other week. It's, it's amazing grace. It's God's grace that, that, takes us from where we are and puts us on a foundation of where we need to be and um, how grateful are we for that. Mm, 100%. 100%. So finishing up, because uh, I am mindful of your time, so have you had any mentors in your life yourself? Uh, yeah, look, I have. Um, interestingly, I said my father died mm. when I was 14. A 14-year-old boy needs a dad. At 14, you're right in the formation years where it's easy to make bad choices and bad choices will give you those bad outcomes. A lot of my friends that had dads didn't really have dads because dads weren't present and they made bad choices and they paid an enormous price. But, you know, God even had a plan then. Mm. Having just joined a church and from that point on, um, there were three guys in my church and in my life that taught me the things that I needed to learn. They were my mentors. They taught me as I was transitioning from being a boy how to be a man, so boyhood to manhood. And it didn't finish there. Then they taught me I was married at 20. Um, they taught me how to be a husband and then it hadn't finished there. They taught me at 27 we had our first son. They taught me how to be a dad and they weren't mentoring me in a business sense, much, much bigger than that. They were mentoring me in a life sense. Mm. They were giving me life skills. They were helping me shape my heart around what Christ wants and what's what's acceptable to him. They taught me that life is frail, that, that, you know, things do go wrong. As I said, you know, the notion of 
it wasn't what happened, it was what you did in response. You know, um, life's full of pain, but you've got to work out, don't get down, you know, don't let it get you down, that misery being optional. And they taught me those sorts of things. They taught me the importance of looking after yourself, looking after your wife, looking after your children and how you do that and the things that, you know, more important than 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 giving them you know, what they might want in the physical sense would have been giving them what they needed in the spiritual sense, being strong leaders for two boys that I had. So those mentors, one of them's still alive. Yeah. And I spoke to him only a week ago. And I still give thanks for those three men that probably invested invested more into me than they will ever, ever know. Two of them have gone home to be with the Lord and yeah. And I said to one of them when he was uh, about to leave us, say hello to Reggie for me. And um, so that's the nature of, of, of life. And I've had some really good mentors in, in business as well. Um, some great mentors, probably moving from mentorship into friendship, into joined sort of friendship with some law enforcement leaders across the planet, um, you know, some very, very close friend who was the, the deputy director of the FBI for a number of years and moved into very senior roles and mm. is now the president, I think they call him, of, of uh, a Christian university in, in uh, Indianapolis. Wow. Um, great friend, great friend and in touch with him only last week. So... Those that, that mentor, you know, there's, there's an old, that, that, that scripture that talks about um, as iron sharpens iron, so one, so one man sharpens another is so true. Mm-hmm. So true. So, yeah, mentors are important. A lot of people used to come up to me and talk about, you know, would you be a mentor to my son? And I'd say, look, um, I probably couldn't give your son enough time, but I know somebody who is probably the best mentor that will be able to help you, will certainly be able to invest into your son and take him to places he would never have even dreamt about. And that's you as his dad Mm. because, you know, you're with him day in, day out. Mentor, a formal mentoring role, you're probably, if you're with them an hour a week, you're doing well. Whereas he sees you not only in the good times, but in the not so good times, he sees you when you're under pressure. So if you want to mentor into him, mm. it's not during the good times. You'll be able to give him good material, but some of the most important mentoring roles in terms of how to be a dad, how to be a father, how to be a man, how to relate as a community member, um, how to be a good employee, he's going to see it in action in you. So my only advice to you is make good choices because mm. he's going to watch you. And he's going to copy you and he's going to mimic what you do. That's the way we are. You know, um, we know that because that's the way the world has been and, and nations are built on the backs of fathers that have grown and handed down to their children the lessons for the next generation and the generation of the generation. The Chinese had it right. They had an old saying. said, if you want to invest... Um, for 12 months, invest in rice. If you want to invest for 10 years, 
Invest in trees. If you want to invest for 100 years, invest in people. So if you put your efforts into raising up great children, Mm. you're going to leave such an important legacy for a nation and those children will go on and flourish. So I always talk particularly to men about the importance of being great mentors to your children. And they'd, some would say, I can't talk, I don't know how to put this in to speak, I'm, I'm not sure how to exhibit it. I said, no, 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 I'm talking some of your, your greatest mentoring um, that you'll ever do will be in the quietness of 10 minutes when your, fa- your, your children see the father in a situation that could go either way. Um, I didn't have that dad, but I had those three men that invested so heavily. Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredible. So I guess three bits of advice you could give someone that is struggling or just starting out that needs yep. yeah, just a little bit of a boost in life yeah. where they are. Well, it all comes back to God's word again. Micah talks about, you know, in, uh, and how should I live as a man? I think it's Micah 6. In everything you do, act justly. That means doing the right thing. In everything you do, just do the right thing. Mm. You get a great outcome. Um, love mercy. And in cop speak, that was give people a fair go. Don't think you're any better than them. Cut them a break. That doesn't mean they're not accountable and responsible for what they've done. If they've hurt somebody or they've damaged something or they've taken something, you know, if you committed the crime, you've still got to be accountable for it. Mm. But give them a fair go. Do with them honestly. And the last part of that, that verse in Micah is, and walk humbly. In cop speak for me, it wasn't a matter of saying, well, I can because I'm a cop. You know, um, get out of our way. We're in charge. We're the police. Mm. So again, it was Mike 6 talks about in everything you do, act justly, um, love mercy and walk humbly. And so what I handed down to my children, my two boys that are police, the same thing. Do the right thing. Give people a fair go. Don't get a big head. Don't don't lord it over people just because you can. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether you're a cop or a carpenter. And the fact is, it's good advice. How do I know that? Because that's what God says we need to do if we want to walk as a man mm. and serve Him. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that that would be what I would leave with people. You know, just go back and have a look at the the verse yourself. Um, it meant a lot to me. It means a lot to I know to my my children, and I'm sure it would mean a lot to anyone. Mm. Great pieces of advice. So here's my favorite part: um, your favorite film, your favorite <laughs> actor, and the last film that you watched. That's one of my favorite. The bits. last film that I watched was on a plane. It was a, a movie called Hidden Figures. Ah, oh, yes, yes. About the, the women in the NASA. Space um, agency that were the human computers. Great movie. Mm. If you get a chance to watch it, Hidden Figures. Um, you'll 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 see a little bit about Kevin adversity. Costner yeah, and, yeah. Um, 
what was my favourite movie? Your favourite movie? You can have more than one. Gee, I, I love... Um, I love um, Master and Commander, yep. Russell Crowe. Um, great, great movie. Um, interesting in terms of the the leadership that was expressed there, but I love that type of movie and that was a particular movie that I enjoyed. And what was the third? Your favourite actor. My favourite actor. Oh, gee. <laughs> uh, well, I don't mind Rusty. Uh, yep. Russell's pretty good. Um, I think he's... He's, he's not a, I like Australian actors and I think he's probably one of the better ones awesome well thank you so much Mr. Andrew for coming on and sharing your stories with us hope it helps no worries thank you all the best what did you guys think of the interview with Andrew Scipioni um, I was incredibly challenged by his interview and if you've made it this far here's my thoughts really because as I was listening to him speaking, my brain was just going a million miles an hour and it was very, very difficult for me to actually focus in on one particular thing because I had so many things racing through my mind. Um, I was doing my best to actually stay in the moment and stay with him as he was talking, but he was just so challenging is the way he spoke and all the words as well. So I really do uh, appreciate Andrew Scipioni for actually coming on the story box and sharing his stories. Uh, with all of you guys as well. Um, so if you did get something out of it, please do share it around. Get the story box out there to as many people as you possibly can. The story box is growing and the fantastic news is we're getting more and more special guests on that uh, have got pretty amazing stories and I can attest to that because I've interviewed them. And what might what I might have pre-thought going in when we've actually sat down and, and spoke about certain things, it's been completely different to what I had originally thought. So, which is pretty, pretty damn amazing if you ask me. So those are coming in the coming weeks. I have a massive backlog of people that I need to sort of launch and, and get out there. And, um, but you guys are awesome uh, for listening and for sharing as well. Uh, follow the story box on social media as well. We're on Instagram and Facebook, get the share, uh, subscribe and, and like and, and follow as well and, and just share around to as many people as you possibly can really do appreciate it but that's all from me one and all until next week don't forget to share your stories around too thanks thanks so much guys enjoy the rest of your day never know what to say at the end of these ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 